Good morning. In church, we talk about the Bible a lot. We read stories from the Bible. We quote the Bible. We memorize verses from the Bible. But today I want to talk about a very basic question. What is the Bible about? What is the Bible about? If you had a friend or maybe a classmate or perhaps a neighbor were to come up to you and ask you, you're a Christian, what is the Bible about? Well, how would you answer that question? Now, if you think about it for a minute, at first, that might seem like a pretty difficult question to answer. Because after all, even though this one is kind of small, the Bible's a big book. This has tiny print. It's one huge book that's made up of 66 smaller books. There are over, there are 1,189 chapters. There are over 31,000 verses and over 780,000 words in the Bible. So how could you even begin to tell someone what such a massive book is about? Now, you could go with an easy answer. You could say, well, the Bible is about God. Or maybe you're thinking in terms of the whole Bible, you say the Bible's about Jesus. And both of those answers are gloriously and wonderfully true. The Bible is a book about the one true God. But your friend might want you to go a bit deeper. Okay, great, it's about God. But what does God do? What does it say? about God. Well, as the children just heard, we're going to talk about four actions of God that we can use to describe the entire Bible. These four words are one way to describe what the whole Bible is about. And before you get worried looking up at the slide, and if you looked in the bulletin, no, we're not reading from Genesis to Revelation today, as some (laughs) had said. Now, you also notice I tried to get a little clever by using the same letter for each point. So the the point is that you not necessarily remember these words, but that you remember these concepts, these points. This is what Scripture is about. So today, let's talk about what the Bible's about. But before we do that, let's take a moment to pray. Lord, this morning, we ask that you would get the glory with everything that is said and everything that we hear. May our focus be on you. As one of your followers, a man named John the Baptist said, he asked that you would increase and that he would decrease. And that's our prayer today, God. We want to see you increase. We want to see more of you and think less about us. May what we say here today lead us to understand about your word and how it tells us about how you formed the world, how we fell into sin. You provided a way for faith and you will fix your broken creation. But remind us that this is only possible through the person and work of your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that I pray. Amen. Well, as the kids heard, the first thing the Bible tells us about God is that he formed the world. God formed the world. That means he created, he made, he designed, he shaped everything that we see around us. Another word we can use to describe this is creation. God created the world. The same way we might build something out of bricks or wood or perhaps even Legos, or we might mold something with clay or Play-Doh, God spoke and everything that we see came into existence. So if you look, every tree, every mountain, every river, every bird, every animal owes their existence to him. Yet, even in all this creation, there was something that God made that was different because he also created people. We read about how he gave the first man life, 
And one place we read about that is in Genesis 2, verse 7. It says, Then the Lord God formed the man, there's that word, formed the man from the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. What we learn from this is we did not create ourselves. It was out of dust that God created a creature in his likeness. And what that means is that God made a being that has both a physical body and an eternal soul. For this new creature, God plants a garden in a place called Eden. It's a place of luxury and pleasure. In many ways, this garden was kind of like a temple. It was a place where God was to be worshipped and served. God is perfectly holy. He's righteous. He's good. And so this garden could not have any sin or evil in it at all, because then it would not be a true place to worship the Lord. Years later, a man named Moses would say this to God's people, the Israelites, at a later time. He'd say, because the Lord your God walks in the midst, he's with you, he's going to deliver you, he's going to give up your enemies before you, that means that your camp must be holy, it must be set apart, it must be different so that he might not see anything indecent or wrong or bad among you and turn away from you. So God's presence in that garden meant that it must be holy. In this garden temple, there was a man and his helpmate called woman, and they were given a task. You can see it up here. The Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. The man and the woman were to do what they were formed to do. They were to do their job, and they were to honor their Lord. And that's the same purpose for every person who exists today. One of the best ways this is stated, I think, is in this document. It has a long name. It's called the Westminster Confession of Faith. But look what it says. It says, man, human, people's chief end, our main purpose is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Our main purpose is to praise God by doing what he's called us to do and by enjoying our relationship with him. In the Bible, we see it this way. Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, whatever it is, do all to the glory of God. Do it all for his praise. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were able to live out this verse. Their lives proclaimed God's glory through all creation. The man and the woman were able to help each other to serve, to worship, and to enjoy the Lord. They were too different, yet they complemented each other. They became one in their purpose of honoring the Lord. God had created a helper for Adam that would join with him in working and keeping God's garden temple. God created men and women, husbands and wives, to uniquely complement each other in living for Him. Now, there's a lot we can learn from God's creation. In the mighty mountains or the raging waterfalls, we can see His power and how He rules over all. These were two pictures of some waterfalls that I saw recently on the trip. We also realize, though, that we were created to live in a relationship with God. We were created to be in his presence. Mankind was supposed to know God. We were supposed to know him on an intimate and on a personal level. That great longing that exists in our souls, that great longing we feel in our hearts, it can only be filled by God 
himself. If we had a new or perhaps a better relationship, if we got a new job or a better job, if we got a a new toy we always wanted, if we got more money, that would not bring us lasting joy and satisfaction because only God can do that. And the longer we try to satisfy that longing, that thing we want with something other than God, the more upset we'll be, the more frustrated we'll become. Being in a relationship with God, if we are in His presence, that is the dearest treasure in the world. Everything else in our lives must come second to that. So if there's anything in your life that is a greater priority, you love it more than your relationship with God, you're living more like someone outside the Garden of Eden than how we were created to live in God's presence. We could also say that God's creation gives value and worth to every person that we meet. One passage of Scripture, Psalm 139, 13, it talks about how God is involved in creating every person. The person writing it says, you formed, hey, there's that word again, you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. So that means even if you don't like that classmate who sits next to you, even if you don't like that coworker, even if that neighbor drives you crazy, even if that brother or sister gets under your skin, they were created by God, and that gives them value. So God formed the world to show his power, to enter a relationship with his people, and to give every person dignity and value. Things were perfect. However, as the kids also heard, the world as we know it and everything in it is now fallen. It's fallen. In Genesis 3, we can read about how the first man and woman sinned. They rebelled against God. A creature called the serpent persuades Eve, who in turn convinces her husband Adam to disobey God. And in this moment, some dark words that a man named James would write, they come to pass. James says each person is tempted when he is lured, when he is enticed by his own desire, what he wants. And then desire, when it grows up, when it conceives, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. In their desire to become like God, Adam and Eve actually become less like God. They're forced to hide from his presence. Just a few moments before, they could enjoy God's presence. Now they have to hide from God. Adam and Eve betrayed the trust that God had given them. They were meant to govern. They were meant to rule God's creation. Instead, they obey one of the creatures they're supposed to have power over. Men and women were told in chapter 1 to be fruitful and to multiply. But now, God tells them that the woman's childbearing will be a painful process. We see that human relationships are broken as well. A man and his wife, they were supposed to complement one another. But now they will struggle with each other. They will struggle to dominate the other person. Adam is told that the ground that he was made of, out of, that will now be cursed. His work used to be a joyful service, but now it's going to be toil. Nature itself is broken by these events. The Apostle Paul put it this way. He said creation was subjected. It was made to be futile, to be worthless, not because it wanted to, but because it was subjected. But there's still hope. There's hope that creation will be set free from its bondage to this corruption, this fallenness, this badness. It can obtain the freedom 
of the glory of the children of God. But for right now, we know the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Our world is full of natural disasters and destruction that illustrate that pain. But the greatest judgment is death. We were created, we were designed to live forever. But instead, our bodies decay and return to the dust from whence they came. This chapter, this Genesis 3, it's key to understanding every problem that we see in the world. The answer to the question, why did this horrible thing happen? Why did this happen to me? Why did this awful thing occur? The answer is always sin. Every kind of suffering and pain can be attributed to this event. The world itself is broken. We've lost our connection to the Lord. We've been separated from God's presence and our future holds nothing but sin and death. We were separated from God's loving, his satisfying presence with us. Now we follow our own interests and desires. We do what we want. We do not live for our purpose of glorifying the Lord. Our relationships with other people are fractured and broken. They often produce hurt and pain. Every person now is born with a sin nature. They always choose to sin against God. And if a person remains like that, then their death can lead to an etern- it will lead to an eternity of separation from God in a place called hell. In the very simple words of Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's a really dark, a really sad turn after such an amazing start. But the good news is this is only Genesis 3. It's only the beginning of God's word. And that's not the end of the story. Because God's solution for the world's fallen state is faith. God's solution is faith. In that very chapter where man and woman fall, we read Genesis 3.15. God tells the serpent that I'm going to put enmity, hatred, conflict between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. The woman's offspring shall bruise or shall crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. God says that the seed or the offspring of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent, but be bruised in return. And so right here at the very beginning, even in this awful moment, God gives Adam and Eve hope that one of their descendants would defeat the serpent. There is hope that one day the relationship between mankind and God, it's going to be restored. There will be a perfect human who will come and crush the evil and sin of the serpent. And the rest of the Bible traces this theme. It explores how God is working out his plan to restore his relationship with people. One way he does this is by promising a man named Abraham that he will have a special and an intimate relationship with Abraham's children. The kids even sang a, a a song today about Father Abraham and many sons, we are, I'm one of them, and so are you. God says that he will be their Lord. He will be the one that they can turn to in their time of need. God chooses this one man and those connected to him to be the people he will use to restore the broken relationship between humans and God. God then brought Abraham's descendants. They were known as the Hebrews or Israelites. He brought them out of slavery in Egypt. 
He used a man named Moses. He leads them to a mountain where he gives them guidelines for the relationship that God is going to have with his new people. These guidelines, we call them commandments or laws, they're detailed instructions about how to relate to God. And they also tell the people, here's how you can build something called a tabernacle, a tent where God will meet with his people. And finally, like Eden, there's a place on earth where people can be in the presence of God. It's not perfect, though. There's a lot people have to go through to get close to God. And sin is still present among God's people. They turn the, tab, the tabernacle into a temple, but eventually the sin of God's people causes God's glory to leave that temple that was built for him. The temple is destroyed. The people who once enjoyed access to God, they're now cast off into exile. And even when they return, they're unable to get back to that same privileged position. Because a rebuilt temple will not solve the problem of sin that separates men and women from their God. But even even now, hope is still not lost. God tells a prophet named Ezekiel to tell his people that one day God is going to sprinkle clean water on his people. They shall be clean from all their uncleannesses, from all their idols, all the other things they love, he will cleanse them. And he's going to do something for them. He's going to give them a new heart. He's going to give them a new spirit within them. He's going to remove the dead heart of stone and give them a living heart of flesh. He says, I will put my spirit within you. I will cause you to walk in my statutes what I say, and I will cause you to be careful to obey my rules. Here God's pointing out the central issue, the problem, the thing that broke the relationship between God and people is the sinful human heart. And so God's solution is to go right to the heart of the issue. He's going to cleanse his people from sin and give them a new heart and his Holy Spirit. With God's own Holy Spirit living in them, they will be able to be righteous before God. They will be able to have access again to his presence. The question, though, is how can this happen? How can God change someone's heart? How can God enter the heart of someone who's sinful? It's here we must remember these words from Genesis 3.15, that second part. A man must come and bruise or crush the head of the serpent. Someone who is fully man must live a perfect life and defeat sin and death. But we know, we know lots of people, and we know that no one is perfect. There's no man or woman, no friend we have that does everything right all the time. But what if God himself became a man. Well, it's now that we cross over into the New Testament, where in a very powerful description, the Apostle John writes this, God, the Word, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. God, in the person of Jesus Christ, became fully man while still remaining fully God. He lived a perfect life, and then he died to pay the penalty for sin. And so now, those who know Jesus Christ, those who have a relationship with him, those who have turned away from sin, those who trust in Jesus to save them, these words are now true. 
They have been justified. They've been made right by faith. They have peace with God. Through him, they've obtained access. They have access to faith in God with this grace. They're able to rejoice in hope in the glory of God. Those who have a relationship with Jesus Christ have peace with God. They're able to enter his presence. Most of the Bible is about that. It's about this faith promised and then fulfilled in Jesus. Faith is God's answer to mankind's fall. But there is still one more major action of God in the Bible. We are told that someday, someday his creation will be fixed. Will be fixed. Now we're not there yet. Its full expression is still to come. But we see hints of it in our lives even now. Once God's people were in the Garden of Eden, where they worshipped Him. Then they were able to worship Him at the tabernacle and the temple. But now, those who know God, this is true. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have received from God? So that means you're not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. If we know God, we have the Holy Spirit in us. He helps us to live for God. We belong to Him. If God is living in us, in the Holy Spirit, we should live for Him. We should honor Him. We should worship Him. And not only that, but if He's in us, we're now called to share that with those around us. God, in the person of the Holy Spirit, gives us the ability. He helps us, equips us to live for the Lord. He gives us the power to share that faith with others. So that's the taste of this fixing that we see. We have God's presence with us now. But someday, we will see the end of the Bible fulfilled. We will see God fix and restore His creation to what it was intended to be. Near the very end of the Bible, we read this in Revelation 21, verses 3 through 5. That same man, John, I talked about earlier, he says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, The dwelling place of God is once again with man. He will dwell with them. He will live with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. Here's what he's going to do. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. There shall not be mourning. There will not be crying. There will not be pain anymore. For these former things have passed away. And then he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Remember, sin had broken the relationship of God and his creation. It had broken our relationship with each other. And so here we see the renewal of what God made. The fallen, broken world becomes a perfect home for Jesus Christ to live with his bride, the church, every believer in him. That last part I read in verse 5 says that we see this is because God, the one on the throne, is making all things new. We are able to be in God's presence because he has made all things new, including us. Paul again would write, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Faith makes us new. 
It prepares us for the fixed and the restored world to come. When God fixes his creation, he will be with his people. And since God's presence is there, there's no need for a temple. God does not have to put himself in one holy place. He will make the entire world holy. And at that point, everyone still living on the earth will be those who know God, those who have been saved from his judgment. Once we see God face to face, we will understand what we did not know before. Everything will become clear in his light. We'll not only see clearly, though, we'll become like God. We won't become God, but we'll become like him. We'll reflect his image in glory, like a perfect mirror that shows the exact image it displays. We'll reflect God the way we were supposed to in the Garden of Eden. John would write this in 1 John 3, 2. We are God's children now. What we will be, that has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, when Christ returns, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. That authority that Adam and Eve were given over creation, it will be fully restored. And instead of this distant temporary sun we see in the sky, God will be our light and we will reign with our Lord forever. But I want us to see a key thing here. All these blessings are coming from God. The people who enjoy this fixed creation, they did not earn these gifts. They came solely from God's mercy and grace. God is the one who does all the work, and people can only respond. And so we can either respond by rejecting God's work or by embracing the Lord with gratitude and faith. There's nothing we do to earn favor with God. He's the one who has done all the work. God's not telling us to sin less or to be better. He wants us to know him more. Because as we know him and as we rely on him, it is then and only then that he will change us and make us more like his son, Jesus Christ. So friends, do not let your struggles or your suffering or even your sin lead you to despair. Instead, trust in God, the one who guarantees to bring this future about. So creation, God's creation, the fall, redemption, restoration, or maybe you prefer my words, formed, fallen, faith, fixed. This is what the Bible is about. It is the one storyline that runs through the entire scripture. Now, there are many other ways that we could explain the Bible. I'm not saying this is the best way or the only way, but this is a short version of something you can remind yourself what the whole Bible is about. And maybe it's easy enough for you to explain to someone else. So maybe you'll find these words helpful. God formed a perfect world. We sinned, and now the world is fallen and broken. God provided salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And when he returns the world will be fixed. But if you want to experience that, you have to turn from your sin and come to faith in Jesus Christ. You can ask me about that, or you can ask any person you know who loves God about how you can have a relationship with him. If you're a believer in God, well, then we have the unique privilege of joining with him in his work of sharing this good news, this message of this book with others.
If we know God, then we have an obligation. We have to tell others about him, about this book, and about how these ideas, formed, fallen, faith fixed, how they flow through his word, and how they should flow through our lives. This is an amazing story, and it should lead us to praise our Lord, because he alone is worthy.